They are power women both inside and outside of Litchfield Penitentiary, Uzo Aduba and Kate Mulgrew of Orange is the New Black, and Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos on his journey with Netflix, now on Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. It's nice to be back and still recovering from Oscar night. What a way to end award season. But this week, we set our sights on the coming TV season with the triumphant return of Genji Cohen's Orange is the New Black later this spring. I was thrilled to meet series favorites, Kate Mulgrew, who plays Red, and Uzo Aduba, two-time Emmy winner for her role as Suzanne Crazy Eyes Warren, whose shocking backstory was revealed to us last season. We talk about that, how Genji Cohen has revolutionized storytelling, and what it's like to work with 50 women on the call sheet. But first... Just this week, Netflix had a huge event in Berlin, unveiling upcoming shows, films, and innovations. Talents like Mulgrew and Aduba were there, as well as Bob Odenkirk of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, Chelsea Handler, showrunners, co-founder Reed Hastings, as well as chief content officer Ted Sarandos. It's quite a journey that Netflix has taken. Starting in the late 90s as a DVD by mail business, they started their own content production in 2013, with among other shows, House of Cards. Netflix has gone on to produce some of the biggest shows ever, Orange is the New Black, Better Call Saul, Stranger Things, and The Crown, just to name a few. And they have led the pack in changing our viewing habits to binge-watching. They've also expanded to film and documentary, for example with White Helmets that just won them their first Oscar. There is no doubt that Netflix is a force to reckon with in our new TV and film landscape, with 93 million subscribers worldwide. And just now, in 2017, they're going to be launching 1,000 hours of original content with directors such as Angelina Jolie and new shows by Genji Cohen and David Fincher. Here is where Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos comes in. He's the one that brought us House of Cards with Kevin Spacey. He started his career managing video stores back in Arizona, and he genuinely seems to love great storytellers and their art. And he seems genuinely appreciated by the artists. Here is writer-actor Bob Odenkirk talking about Sarandos. We used to sit down and have a lunch once in a while because his office was right above mine, and Ted would tell me about Netflix and the service and what they were. The first time we had lunch, you told me about streaming. Yeah. And you, if I'm not mistaken, you said, because you were, at the time it was, you know, DVDs in the mail, which sounded ludicrous to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I did sign up, but also sounded crazy. I didn't realize how fast you would get them to our house. The, the mail seemed down slow. I never knew mail could move that fast. Yeah. <laughs> it was like you had your own private mail service. Yes. It was very it strange. Well, yeah. You would send the DVD, and the next day, yeah. how did you do that? It was magic. It was magic. <laughs> Internet magic. I, you know, I think you guys <laughs> But um, you told me about streaming. And, y you know, I think you said that computers still needed to get faster. Yeah, streaming. At that point, in order for streaming to even happen, they had to build faster computers yeah. for more people. Right. So you guys were seeing way down the you know, into the future in an amazing way. 
And um, so I'm so happy for your success, because it, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And really, truly, it's been a wonderful thing to know Ted and watch him make it through uh, this effort uh, and have and get where he's gotten and, and where this whole company has gotten. It's really wow. a wonderful Thank thing you. to see. Ted Sarandos has been called a human algorithm for the way he uses data to work out what the viewers really want. He's described how House of Cards was kind of generated by an algorithm, that he used data to work out how many subscribers actually loved both political thrillers and Kevin Spacey. Data, combined with what he describes as a gut feeling for good stories, is still an important part of how he works with Netflix content. I met Sarandos in Berlin, just as he was presenting Netflix's coming lineup. First of all, I want to say congratulations on your Oscar. Oh, thank it's you very amazing. much. What so a you're great thrill. Take over film now? Uh, we're going to take we're taking the first steps of uh, trying to improve distribution, you know, on behalf of film lovers. Mm. So that if you love a film and you don't happen to live anywhere near uh, a major city that's showing it, that you'll have access to it at the same time as everybody else. And very important movies, I just want to add, the 13th and White Helmets, that really, you're doing something very good for, uh, for all of us. Thank you. We also had a, a third nominee in there, which was Extremis, right. uh, which is also dealing with uh, end-of-life decisions, which, uh, again, another one of those conversations that people have to have that nobody wants to have. So. Right. Well, we're lucky they got your envelope right. <laughs> so I have a theory about people who started very early working in video stores, like Tarantino and yes, Kevin Smith, yes. if you're real film lovers, like yes, yourself. Yes, that's true. And that you sort of know your audience and pop culture. Is there some connection to that and you're sort of thinking about algorithm and your audiences? Well, you know what? I think what it is is that in the early days of those video stores, like, uh, like Kevin and... Uh, um, we were, <laughs> yeah, but you had the ability to, um, the, the stores are empty all day mm -hmm. and they do all their business after work and in the last few hours of the evening. So you have lots of time and uh, have access to this like, you know, it'd be like being locked inside the library. You can read everything. And in this case, you could watch every movie ever made. In this case, you know, they were like, in, in my days when I first started, and it was only like 900 films on video. So I, I went through and watched everything in the store. Right, um, right. And can you talk a little bit uh, briefly about you're starting, you're thinking about the algorithms and how you thought with Kevin Spacey and so on, and how you're working today. Yeah, look, I think um, we have a lot of data in terms of what gets watched and what gets loved and what gets turned off right away and all those things that go into some of our decision making. But at the end of the day, it's, it's art. So there's a bit of intuition that goes into it and you try to use the data to reinforce uh, your your hunches like can can this be very big? Therefore, we should invest a lot of money in this, mm -hmm. or this is, is this something really great? But it's very small, so we should control the investment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the biggest role that data plays for us is helping us size the financial investment. But at the end of the day, you're picking the projects based on the quality of the scripts, the storytellers, the cast, all the things that you think that is that are fairly traditional in that way. And it, do you know something about me? So if I say Master of None, is this a complete work of? genius. Do, what can, does that say about me? Um, it would probably say that you would be in a, um, a demographic that would probably would enjoy um, Woody Allen films, which uh, if you were a fan of Aziz's stand-up, it wouldn't necessarily tell you that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but as I think that's what it would say, that you're in, you would like an intelligent comedy that doesn't have to have a joke a minute, mm -hmm. uh, that can take a pause on uh, and to make a serious point every now and then. Louis C.K., so, that ah, you've gotten off there you as go. well. Um, and what about storytelling in the age of Trump um, in terms of drama? Do you, see, do you think there's going to be a change in how we tell stories and how, what you're looking for and such? 
Um, I don't. I, th- I think you know it changes the. It isn't what we're, that we're looking for anything different. I think that storytellers are influenced by their times, so that there there are new stories that are going to emerge in this time. Uh, certainly not just of Trump, but of Brexit and uh, times of great political change mm-hmm. uh, that people will will pivot and the stories that uh, that they'll feel like they must tell will be different this year than they were two years ago. And they'll probably be different 12 years from now. Mm-hmm. So um, How so, so? Do you see already now what, how the stories, in what direction they're going to go? No, not yet. I think it's early. I think people, like I said, I think that there's a, a level of, uh, of of discomfort with the unknown. So people take a lot of comfort in, uh, you see the in trends with comedy and drama and tragedies and uh, these in times of most political turmoil, you also have times of the, some of the greatest documentary storytelling of the, you know, ever. So, um, which is something you take very seriously. Absolutely. I mean, your documentary department is outstanding. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. We've had seven Academy Award nominations in the last four years. So it's a, they're an incredible group. Mm-hmm. Do you still not make pilots? For your shows, we, st- we still do not pilot. Yeah. And what is the pros and cons about that for someone who is used to, like me, talking to showrunners? And my husband's a writer, and yeah. he's always making pilots. What, what, why? I find that the the pilot system is is mostly defensive, right? Mm-hmm. So they will do a pilot deal so that somebody else doesn't get the show that you don't want to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't I don't know that that's to me that I'd much rather take a take take a gamble. And be all in, and let the writers be more invested in the process than they would be just to write one show and move on. So, um, when we say yes, it's a little more risky because we're saying yes to eight to thirteen hours of programming versus one hour. Mm. And at the end of the day, the pilot very rarely reflects the show itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a process, I think, of uh, executives being able to cover themselves and say, uh, "Well, the pilot didn't test well, or the pilot tested well." Versus just taking a chance and seeing where, see how it lands. So, at what point do you say, is it in the script, and do you say this is this is for us that that's you can already make your decision it, at that point? It's mostly in the script. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are times obviously we're taking um, um, pitches without a script, mm-hmm. um, and with a bible and an outline and talent attached, and mm-hmm. taking a gamble. Uh, Orange is the New Black is an example of that that had was just a, a, a pitch and a book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but mostly it's in the script, because I think if it's not in the writing, it's not going to work. Right. Can you say, give an example of what seemed like your biggest risk, a huge risk that actually paid off and the other way around? Um, I, well, one of them I think, I think would be The Crown, um, mm-hmm. which on paper seemed like it was... Um, kind of a of a highbrow costume drama, mm-hmm. um, and it was you know a rather expensive investment. Uh, Very expensive, commi- <laughs> and we committed to two seasons without a pilot, um, and uh, and we did that based on the quality of the writing. You know, we had we had several of the scripts up front, um, and it was the bet was is that the queen is such a popular and well known figure that the audience for it would be bigger than you in a typical costume drama. Uh, and that they could continue to write at the quality that they did for the first couple of hours for 20 hours, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, which they, by all counts, they certainly have. Um, and it's the show is conceived as a 60-hour program that it will take uh, a season to tell a, a decade in the Queen's life right. to presumably present day. So we're, um, but you know, so I, I think from the amount of uh, uh, financial investment that goes into that. Um, I think most people wouldn't wouldn't have bitten off as much as we did, but because we did, they were able to make a show at the quality levels that they that did. You want, right. Which we said we had that same experience with House of Cards, mm-hmm. which seemed pretty nutty to do two seasons without a pilot. Uh, but because and that was like one of your first too, so that must yeah. have been even more scary. To- <laughs> well, well, definitely, and I, but I think that because the writing team knew 
definitively there would be a, an hour 26 when they sat down to write, mm-hmm. that every hour leading up to it was better right. versus writing and hoping you don't get canceled next week and writing and hope you don't get canceled next right. week. Yeah. And what about you? You know that life. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we lived. <laughs> yes. Going back to uh, that video store where you were, you know, is there any one of those that you were watching at night that like, I got him now. We are. Ma- I'm making a series or a movie with that. Oh person. yeah, um, Spike Lee. One of the first movies oh. that really got me into uh, independent film was She's Got to Have It. Yeah. And that um, for me it was an eye-opening film. Like I'd never seen anything like it before. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, mm-hmm. pretty small town. So it's pretty big today. But you know, you, Phoenix has grown four percent a year for forty years. So imagine mm-hmm. oh, when well, I was growing yeah. up there, uh, you know, thirty years ago, what that was like. But they had. Um, uh, and I didn't even know Spike Lee existed because it wasn't a theater that would show a Spike Lee movie in right. Phoenix. And then I saw on video that movie, and it was black and white, and people talked over one another, and the score was louder than the dialogue what sometimes. And when they walked, their feet didn't move. <laughs> I'd never seen anything like it. It was just, but I thought it was so amazing. And then now we're doing a series version of that of that film. Yeah, were uh, you like Netflix. starstruck when you get that? <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, in fact, all I mean, I, uh, um, this is one of those great like pinch yourself careers because I. Every one of my heroes, I've have, have been getting the opportunity to at least meet with, yeah. but sometimes work with. Make art with, absolutely. Because now you're doing Scorsese and De Niro. I understand. Is that true? Well, we're too early to talk yeah. about that yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, but the, yeah. for me, that's the hero. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just saying we have got. Um, uh, you know, we're doing uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, we're bringing back his his stand-up comedy yeah. for to Netflix, and we're going to pick up his uh, his series, Comedians in Cars, uh, and I. I Jerry Seinfeld for me was a reason to have a VCR back then. Right. A reason to record television <laughs> right. because of Jerry. And uh, but anyway, so that's the. Well, I have one final question because yeah, my minute is up, and that is: Do you take any sort of personal responsibility for couples binge watching um, unfaithfully? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and what should we be doing about it? I, I, I can see that it's uh, that temptation happens in my house too. Uh, I can always tell when I'm being binge cheated on. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually been articles in Sweden about this and how to help your relationship. And, you know, you have to be honest with each you other. Have to be if you've been watching other. The Crown up until then. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and I have this thing where we we um, we'll pick a show and we will say, this is the one that we're going to, we're going to stick to and yeah. everything else we're on our own. Yeah. Uh, and, and luckily it's those, and I do actually enjoy those shows much more. But the first show that my wife has ever binge watched the entire thing mm-hmm. uh, when we starting on a Friday night and ended on a Sunday was The Crown season okay. one and, and she just, she loved it and we about and I, I for me it was watching it for the fourth or fifth time yeah. uh, and for her watching it for the first time was so fina- so fantastic okay well thank you so much thank I you. really appreciate that thank you, you very much time. thank you thank you to Ted Sarandos One of the first award-winning and powerful series on Netflix was Orange is the New Black. It premiered in 2013 and was created by Genji Cohen, based on the Piper Kerman memoir, Orange is the New Black, My Year in a Women's Prison. It quickly became one of Netflix's most-watched original series, and in large part due to the outstanding cast of diverse women, two of them that I was thrilled to get to talk to. Uzo Aduba plays Suzanne Crazy Eyes Warren, Her backstory was finally revealed after five seasons, and oh my, how heartbreaking it is. These scenes are a testament to why Aduba is a two-time Emmy winner for this part. Everyone was talking about what happened last season. 
the answers to why Suzanne is in prison and how Aduba prepared for this. And we talked about it too. So there's spoilers ahead for any of you who may not be caught up. So catch up. And then there's the incredible Kate Mulgrew, who plays the powerful Galina Red Reznikov, inmate and head chef of Litchfield Penitentiary's kitchen. Mulgrew has a long and impressive career, so beloved and a pioneer for women in pop culture. Mulgrew made history in the Star Trek franchise as she became the first female captain, Captain Catherine Janeway, on the Star Trek Voyager. Both Aduba and Mulgrew have been very dedicated and active voices post-election on women's issues and more, and there's definitely an excitement and willingness to carry this on in the new season of Orange is the New Black. I love Sweden. Here's what I've never been to Sweden, but it has a dear place in my heart because my mother, when she immigrated to the United States after the civil war in our country, she stopped over in Sweden lived there for some time. Oh, really? Yes, that's where she also discovered Simon and Garfunkel. In Sweden. <laughs> and, uh, okay. in Sweden. Um, and she, my entire life, has spoken about it in this, like, fantastical way. Yeah. I've never been there. I've not been there either. Right. I'd love to see it. Genji Cohen has 50 women on the call sheet. All diverse, which is I've never heard of in any other show. Can, can you tell me a little bit about that experience as opposed to other shows of working in that way? Not unwieldy, sometimes daunting in the last season, particularly so, because we're doing a thing about the privatization of prisons. Uh, it's also invigorating, very challenging. Uh, you, have to, you have to be on your toes because at any moment somebody can <laughs> deck you. Yes, uh, I love what she's doing because she doesn't, uh, she doesn't proselytize, Genji. She shows. It's what great writers do. She shows you what happens when you overcrowd a prison. And therefore, it has to be full, doesn't it? Right. She's one, of, it. one of the things she does is that you're saying is she, she does an awesome job of incorporating real facts. Um, how do you think she's going to be working now in the Trump era in terms of the prison system? Well, I think her humor in itself is somewhat absurdist, like just in terms of stylistically. And I think. The past has already, in terms of our prison system, provides a lot of fodder for that absurdist humor. And I think our ever um, our, our present certainly helps to to expand on that sort of humor. She doesn't, as far as those truths go, there's nothing that you really even need to invent because um, she can just say what's been said or right. use language you? like alternative facts. And she can, <laughs> she can take it wherever she wants to take yeah. it politically. And Netflix may sign it. Yeah. I think they will. You know, they're a very good partnership. Yeah. I they're, think, not oh, no, they're not afraid. They're not afraid. None of them. And Genji uh, is absolutely intrepid, both creatively and I'm sure politically. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, a lot of uh, good, quite serious uh, pokes that she'll, she'll make, if not even deeper than that. She yeah. could go any number of ways. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So we learned about your backstory very early in the series, but yeah. yours much, much later. Um, how was that? Is that an acting challenge? How did you create your character going forward? Um, I think it helped to further explain a couple things. Number one, I would say um, the spirit with which Suzanne comes into the prison with. Um, we can see where she, her ups and her downs. Right, mentally. Uh, yeah, and, and where some of the stunting, perhaps, or I, I 
personally think of it as just a different way of operating um, comes from, and we get to see that sort of exercised outside of the walls of Litchfield when she's like getting to be her most authentic and full self. Um, I think it also, which is consistent with Genji's work and what Kate was just uh, expressing, is it asks the question of how, who is in prison and should they be there? Mm -hmm. You know, we, put, we have these institutions throughout the United States and the world, but mostly in the United States, the most incarcerated place in the world, um, of people who are come, being sent there for crimes, but we're not really, and, it, and are, be, are there to, in order to be rehabilitated, but we're not really seeing the mastery of any of that work. Right. Um, and that was, yeah, it definitely changes the way I proceeded forward. Um, but you didn't know the severity of your, it wasn't a crime, it was an accident. Yeah, we all did. It was so, so shocking and almost so shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Did your... Did it change? I, I, I need to ask this. Please, go ahead. Yeah. Did your already, ex, your eccentric, Suzanne is eccentric, mm -hmm. right? Yes. With some degree of perhaps learning disabilities. I don't even know how to articulate yeah. it as a, but was that not only exacerbated but and compounded but do you think that 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 did something to her in the moment that that little boy fell out of the window well absolutely i think what's always interesting for me is with suzanne in the most interesting of moments she finds sobriety and i think in that moment with dylan falling out of the window it was she went from being in a very, you know, heightened, euphoric, euphoric mm -hmm. state to then when you see her stepping into the kitchen, there is a, a beat of registration that there is a danger here. And she actually tries to be an adult, but the injury happened long before Dylan fell out of the window. It happened when she brought him to her house. Of course. You know, and so she, she does, she lost Which that. is that her. Which is her. Right. Not, not sickness, it's not even, that's where she misses, bringing him to the house. Yes, she always comes, she, she, I, and I've said it since the beginning, she's just a, just a click off. off, a beat off. And what she should have known was the right, the right thing to do was not to bring him to the house, right? But when she registers, the right thing to do is to help him from going out the window. The stakes have already risen for Dylan, so he's going to be in opposition to her, it was regardless scene. of right, right. Oh my God. whether she's trying to help or not. All he knows is stranger danger. But when you found out about Suzanne, did it yeah. change your way of acting her or your perception of how you played her? Yeah, yes, because um, what I understood, I, or not understood, I should say, it made me just want to try and ask the question of, answer the question of what does it feel like to feel helpless or trapped inside someone's, in your, inside your own mind. Mm. When you have a clear thought about something and you're aware that nobody, even somebody who you think is eye to eye with you on your level, from like a mental level, and yet they still don't understand you. So proceeding, going forward from that and then into this current season, it's, an insistence on explaining her point of view um, and really trying to get inside the bones of feeling trapped. Right. I, I just became aware that she knows, because she says at the top of season three, uh, excuse me, season four, 
uh, the first episode, well, I did hurt someone. Mm -hmm. She's aware that there was something that wrong that happened, and it's not that she doesn't understand consequence or right or wrong. She does. So when you do know that, how do you connect that knowledge with expression and action? Mm -hmm. So I really became sort of intent on trying to figure that out and trying to find moments, like I said before, of sobriety and calm, but also realizing her actions might be broad and loud because she, that's how they're seen by the world, right. not necessarily how she intends them to be received. Can but I at least you? you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I can, can I ask you, I just got to move on because I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. for a, long, a while ago I interviewed a couple, their name, the Giacometans, they were exec producers of Mad Men, but before that they had written um, Star Trek and they told me that every single human emotion possible for them to go forward writing other series, regular series in, in sort of like could take place on that bridge. And that's where they learned everything about life. Mm. I was wondering if that was any, if there was any truth for that for you. Well, of course. Yeah? How could it be otherwise? Uh, but first and foremost, I'm in command, right? The commander can't show too much mm. to the crew. She has to lead. That's the imperative, and that's the difficulty. Right. So the emotions that I got to show were often in my ready room or when I was alone. Mm. But indeed... Uh, on the bridge, having to make life and death decisions every day, every day. Uh, was tough. And to find how that fine line, how to play that. But I think it's so interesting that that series has, has been such an inspiration for very many to, uh, very many other series that have nothing to do with space or mm -hmm. sci-fi. Well, ideologically, we're talking about something that's supremely human. Right. The prime directive, right? We're going to transcend class, creed, Sex, exactly. gender, all of it. Mm -hmm. We're going to, to speak as one, to one another as, as beings mm -hmm. uh, on a level of, a fundamental level of respect. This is the rudimentary Roddenberry ideology. And I think that, uh, of course... You every, can bring that into the prison. You, you can, can bring, bring it that in, And you were everywhere. such a role model for, for women. I guess you didn't learn a tampon sandwich in, on the bridge. <laughs> a tampon sandwich. Well, you'll know, they have to eat my food. There is a price to pay for that. And I was wondering, I understand that you cook. Do you, do you cook for... Uzo's been to my house for dinner a couple of times. Yeah. Yes. Is she good? I just was talking about it. She yeah. isn't like a legit excellent cook. It's not just the roasted chicken, it's the bread. The toasted bread is delicious. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was dreaming I love to about cook. that. Yeah. She's an excellent Thank you. cook. An excellent host as well. Which Sarah really does it really quite you know, I like to do it. And one of the things I know about you is that your mother was a secretary for Kennedy. Is that true? Mm. She was his mm -hmm. private. private secretary. How would, how would she have seen the times that we're in now? How has this made you politically... I know exactly how she would see them, because yeah. I know the Kennedys very well. I was just yeah. talking to Ethel about this the other night, and Carrie Kennedy. Chris Kennedy, by the way, I just was on the phone with him last week, is running for governor of Illinois mm. for the midterms. We've got to get down and dirty. Yes. They're absolutely appalled, which isn't to say that Jack was exemplary in every no. conceivable regard, yeah. but these are yellow dog dams. Right, right. This kind of nonsense, excuse no. me. No. I mean, what Trump is doing is is beyond expression. It's intolerable. And we have to move forward and move against it and resist it, and that's what the Kennedys collectively are doing. And I'm with them, aren't yes, you? I'm, yes. Anything you can tell me about the next season? Absolutely. It's harrowing. <laughs> it is? It's wonderful for Red. Mm. I only remember what I... It, 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 because it's true. Yeah. We take our own little journeys. But it's a lot of fun for Red until it's no longer fun mm. at all. The prison goes another way entirely. Thank you so much. Thank I'm you. I'm so 
very impressed with your work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Uzo, Aduba, and Kate Mulgrew. The new season of Orange is the New Black premieres in June on Netflix around the world. And thank you as well to Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos. And thank you for listening. If you have a moment, go rate the show or leave a comment for Pop Culture Confidential. It really helps us to spread the word. And follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at Pod Pop Culture. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Boy, produced by Renee Witterstedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling Biro. Thank you so much for listening. Hello and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. (laughs) Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. (laughs) Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Green.